From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Prostate cancer is one of the most common types of cancer in men. Now, while some types of prostate cancer grow slowly and may need minimal or even no treatment, other types are aggressive and can spread quickly. If prostate cancer is suspected, a biopsy can confirm the diagnosis. On today's program, we'll discuss prostate cancer and a safer way to biopsy the prostate with a Mayo Clinic expert. Instead of passing the needle through the ultrasound, through the rectum, through the rectal wall, into the prostate, the needle's going directly through the skin. Also on the program, exercise and your heart and treatment for migraines. All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer of the prostate gland. Now, other than skin cancer, it is the most common cancer in men. In the year 2020, it's estimated that there will be about 190,000 men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer in this country and about 33,000 deaths caused by prostate cancer. So it's, it's a bad disease and affects a lot of gentlemen in this country. But most men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer don't die from it. Now, that's the good news. That's right. There are more than 3 million men in the U.S who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point, and they are still alive today. Joining us in studio to talk about cancer of the prostate is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Derek Lomas. It's nice to meet you. Yes, thanks for having me, guys. It's good to have you on the program. So as I recall, you were a resident here at Mayo Clinic, and then you took a year or two and did additional training in what? Correct. So I, I trained here in urology, and then I was a Mayo Scholar for a year, so I got to travel around to various institutions to, to pick up skills. I spent six months in London in the U.K. training in uh, image-guided diagnostics and, and prostate biopsy, as well as focal therapies for prostate cancer. A pretty exciting time, wasn't it? Yeah, very much so. So what did you learn about prostate biopsies? What, what has changed? Well, uh, the traditional way we biopsy uh, prostates in the United States is with what we call a systematic transrectal biopsy. Uh, in this approach, in, in a man that we found to be at potentially elevated risk for, for prostate cancer, and we've recommended a biopsy, we use an ultrasound probe, which is put in the rectum, and then we systematically, but kind of randomly, uh, direct 12 biopsy cores throughout the prostate, usually six on each side. Don't want to miss anything. Uh, correct. But inherently, you will. You know, the chance of you finding prostate cancer on uh, the first-time biopsy in a man is probably about 30 to 40 percent. That doesn't mean the remainder don't have prostate cancer because you might have missed it. So one thing we've been doing here for a number of years, and uh, I expanded on my experience with that over in London, is MRI-guided biopsy. So using imaging to find a specific part of the prostate that looks abnormal, and then biopsying that area. In many cases, we're still doing the systematic cores to kind of complete out the biopsy, but adding uh, cores directly to where we see the MRI is abnormal. Um, the difference in the UK um, was they were doing it transperineally rather than transrectally. What that means is instead of passing the needle through the ultrasound, through the rectum, through the rectal wall, into the prostate, uh, the needle is going directly through the skin behind the scrotum. Skin can be cleaned much easier than the rectal wall. Uh, my mentor o- over there would call uh, the 
transrectal biopsy, the transfecal biopsy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, carrying in some of that uh, uh, bacteria into the prostate can lead to uh, infection and a severe infection called sepsis uh, might impact upwards of 3% of, of men undergoing biopsy. Now, while that doesn't sound like that high of a number, if you think of the numbers you just quoted about prostate cancer, all those men had biopsies. Many more men had biopsies to rule out prostate cancer, and those numbers add up. The cost of admissions, that can be potentially life-threatening. By doing it through the skin, you know, we're talking maybe one out of 500 men might get something like that, so much lower. So have we changed the way that uh, this is being done at Mayo Clinic because of what you learned? I certainly have. I'm a convert. In the U.K., um, you might have heard of Brexit happening. Mm-hmm. I'm leaving the European Union. And on the urology side, there was Trexit, uh, leaving transrectal <laughs> uh, to kind of coincide with it. And a number of hospitals were posting when their Trexit date was. And, and that's my, my goal for Mayo. It seems like a no-brainer, actually. It does. So um, since coming back, outside of a, a very few isolated clinical scenarios, I have not done a transrectal biopsy done probably several hundred now of the transperineal. My other two partners in my group uh, in the outpatient practice have started to convert their practice over, and the ultimate goal would be to phase out the transrectal. You're teaching the old guys. You have new (laughs) tricks. That's Uh, good. How do you decide who needs a biopsy? Well, we have a number of tools. Uh, historically, it's been PSA, that's prostate-specific antigen. That's a blood test that many men get as part of screening for prostate cancer. If that's elevated or rising, that should trigger discussion for a biopsy. And then a physical exam, examination of the prostate uh, through the rectum, if feeling any lumps or bumps, uh, could also trigger a biopsy. Historically, if you had either of those, it would be, boom, on to biopsy. But uh, times are changing. Um We now have prostate MRI, which is very good at both finding areas that look suspicious, but also helping to rule out potentially prostate cancer. So the the MRI scan is very accurate. Uh, It has very good negative predictive value, so very good at ruling out prostate cancer. If I get an MRI on a patient that's maybe borderline and the MRI is clean, I will many times avoid the biopsy. If it shows me something, it's not a slam dunk that it's prostate cancer. Uh, we have to go in and biopsy and still get tissue. So we can't make a diagnosis of prostate cancer based on imaging, but it raises a suspicion and, more importantly, um, tells us where to aim the needles instead of 12 you know, kind of spaced out scores. shot. And areas of the prostate that we wouldn't hit well from the rectum, the top of the prostate, the tip of the prostate, if we know where to aim and we're doing it through the skin, we can hit those areas very well. So you're much more accurate than you used to be in, in getting a diagnosis. I think so. Yeah. And then what happens if it's positive? Prostate cancer is a spectrum of disease. You know, you mentioned earlier that just because you get prostate cancer doesn't mean you're going to die from it. In fact, most men won't die from their prostate cancer. We group patients into what we call risk categories. The primary driver of your risk category is the uh, what we call the Gleason score. It's a score a pathologist gives uh, to the cells uh, when they look at it under the microscope. And for various reasons, these scores go from 6 to 10. Um, 6 is generally low-risk prostate cancer. There's other factors that go into that as well. 7 is an intermediate or middle-risk prostate cancer, and 8 or higher is typically a high risk. Like I said, PSA, physical exam, other things can factor into that. In general, men with low-risk prostate cancer, the favored treatment at this point is surveillance, watching them closely to see if their prostate cancer maybe behaves more aggressively in the future or if it's going to be a prostate 
cancer they're going to die with rather than die of. Is it getting easier for patients to do that as as more people are being, you know, we're going to watchful wait kind of thing? Yeah, and and I'll clarify here. So watchful waiting is a is an, another term used. That's kind of an older term because mm-hmm. uh, it's watchful waiting is you have cancer. We know about it. We're just going to leave it alone, forget about it. And you might do that if you incidentally or or find prostate cancer in an 85-year-old gentleman with other diseases. You might say, forget about this, never look again. Uh, But in a younger man, it's really active and it's really surveillance. So we are talking uh, frequent PSAs, usually every six months to start, a repeat confirmatory biopsy, typically at about a year to make sure that we didn't miss an area and then we confirm that it's still low risk. And then if they haven't had an MRI, getting an MRI to make sure that fits. So patients are getting more comfortable when we can give them more information and more tools and we can share the data that if we find something, we move you on to the treatment pathway and we really haven't found that it negatively impacts your overall survival or cancer-specific survival. And in fact, um, looking at the big series, maybe a third of men uh, up to 10 years, maybe even a half, might go on to having something, but they've avoided that many years without any treatment-related side effects and were able to still treat with curative intent at that time. So you categorize these gentlemen into low-risk, intermediate-risk, and high-risk, and that helps you to determine what the appropriate treatment would be. Correct, and how quickly we need to act. Um, Generally, most urologists will treat intermediate risk or higher, but it's all in context of the patient's situation, their overall health, their goals, um, and so forth. All right, our guest is a prostate expert urologist, Dr. Derek Lomas. We've talked about screening exams. We've talked about prostate biopsies. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment options, including focal therapy. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our topic, prostate cancer. Our guest is a Mayo Clinic urologist, Dr. Derek Lomas. Now we want to talk about uh, treatment options, and I know there are a multitude of them, and it's radiation, and it's surgery, and it's limited surgery. Uh, how, you, how do you make the decision? You sit down with the patient who has the cancer and go over all the options, and the two of you decide together what's best? Uh, absolutely. It's really a patient-centered discussion. Um, they certainly have a choice in what treatment they want, if any. But we use a lot of the data we've obtained during the, the diagnostic pathway to help us uh, make help them make that decision. So uh, looking at their risk category, looking at the features of the, the pathology, looking at the imaging, looking at their overall health, looking at their current levels of function, uh, whether that be from a urinary standpoint or a rectile standpoint, because those are things that are going to get impacted with various treatments. In general, when you look at the guidelines, specifically guidelines for the American Neurological Association, um, for intermediate risk or high-risk prostate cancers, the standard of care treatments are radical prostatectomy, which is removal of the prostate gland, as well as lymph nodes around the prostate. We sew the bladder back to the urethra to maintain the urinary function. And uh, radiation therapy, and there's different uh, ways to give that external beam, proton, 
brachytherapy seed implants, usually in combination with hormone treatment. And those are really the mainstays of treatment. Adding to that, uh, there's increasingly interest in this country and especially in Europe for using focal treatments of the prostate. And to kind of put it into context of what might be happening in other diseases, if you think about kidney cancers, it's now common practice if you have a small kidney cancer to do a partial nephrectomy where the urologist removes only the portion of that nephrectomy kidney. Nephrectomy meaning remove the kidney. Yep, only the portion, a portion of it. Yep, mm-hmm. portion of the kidney that contains the cancer. Or in breast cancer, maybe a lumpectomy, removing the tumor but not the whole breast. And very few solid organ malignancies remove the whole organ for, for just a tumor. So in prostate, that's the idea behind focal therapy. And does that have less complications as as opposed to remove radical prostatectomy? Absolutely. Since we are able to treat uh, an area or the half of the prostate that has the the tumor, we're able to stay well away from uh, the nerves that run along the side of the prostate that help with erections, especially on the other side that we're not treating. And then near the tip of the prostate is the urethral sphincter, which helps hold urine. And um, in many cases, we're able to stay away from that as well. So less incidence of incontinence and erectile dysfunction with that's, focal therapy that's what as the opposed to radical prostatectomy. Correct. This kind of sounds like what is happening with the thyroid. Like mm-hmm. instead of taking the whole thyroid out, we just take out the partial thyroid. But then the part of the thyroid that's left or the part of the prostate that's left, isn't that then still at risk of developing prostate cancer? It is, and and that's why we have to follow these patients very closely. So if you were to have your prostate removed, the follow-up is fairly straightforward. Your PSA blood test, PSA is only produced by the prostate. Your PSA should go to zero or undetectable, and then we can follow that. If it starts creeping up, that could either mean disease is maybe coming back or maybe there's just a little piece of normal prostate still in there. So it's simple, And, and radiation has come up, radiation oncologists have come up with um, criteria for what they mean uh, for recurrence. In focal therapy, it's it's more challenging because there's um, different degrees of focal therapy, whether you're just treating the lesion itself with a little bit of margin or area additionally around it, whether you're treating the half of the prostate, a quarter of the prostate. So there's no set PSA number that things are going to go to. So we really have to do an individualized patient trend, find out what the PSA goes down to, typically checking every three months for the first two years or so. We have to do imaging with MRI. Here, we typically do it every six months for the first two years, but there's various protocols. And then also a confirmatory biopsy generally at one year after after treatment uh, of the area we treated as well as the other side because if someone were to fail we want to be able to pick that up early and move them on to the tr- uh, a whole gland treatment um, without many negative effects. Now you have, I presume haven't been doing this all that long but the, the question is what's the recurrence rate? Absolutely. There's various definitions out there, and every paper seems to use a different definition of what failure is after focal therapy. The most common definitions are uh, finding clinically significant prostate cancer, Gleason 7 or intermediate risk or higher in the area that you treated, or the patient moves on to either a, a whole gland therapy or cancer spreads, or they die of the cancer. Very uncommon that a patient would die from the cancer after uh, focal therapy, but large study out of the UK at the centers I trained at found that at five years, about 88% of the men met that definition for failure-free survival. Um, the 88%. Study, 88%. Pretty good. Pretty good. Now, that does allow that study did allow for a repeat touch-up 
focal therapy, um, and about a quarter of men got that. Now, just a few days ago in the Journal of Urology, there was another study out of France, which the numbers weren't as favorable. At five years, they said maybe 50 to 60% of men went on. But I think that highlights the wide variety in techniques, and you know, it's not clear from their study how how they were treating, how hyperfocal the equipment was different. So there's a lot of variety out there, and we and we just need uh, more data. But what's clear is that if we do find these patients um, recur, we can move them on to another treatment, usually without any other uh, any greater difficulty of doing a surgery or doing radiation, and still overall survival from cancer standpoint is fine, uh, is good, and the majority of the patients don't move on to that. So if they do get a recurrence, though, even though you might detect it fairly early mm-hmm. on, isn't there a risk that that prostate cancer could spread elsewhere before you get it out? There is, but that risk is low on the order of a, a few percent and really hasn't been um, significant in the studies. So what you're saying is that when men get uh, cancer of the prostate, it rarely involves the whole gland. There's, it's usually just a part of the gland, and you can use focal therapy to just treat that. Um, in some men. So that, that highlights the importance of patient selection. Not every man with prostate cancer can get focal therapy. The ideal patient has maybe one tumor in on one side of the prostate. I want the MRI to match up with my biopsy data, so my targeted cores that I aimed at the lesion should be positive. There might be a few systematic or random cores on the same side of the prostate. But if they have cancer on both sides or in multiple spots, then they're probably better off with a whole gland gland treatment. So not everyone's able to get this, but in a properly selected man, uh, it's a good treatment. All right, and let's compare the the three with regard to the the complications that every man fears. That is erectile dysfunction and incontinence. So let's compare radical prostatectomy, uh, focal therapy, and radiation therapy. Sure. So lowest complication rate, uh, so erectile dysfunction and incontinence is with focal therapy. In the studies, large studies of HIFU, which is high-intensity focused ultrasound, one way we treat prostate uh, with focal therapy, and cryotherapy, freezing of the area of the prostate. Mm-hmm. Um, incontinence rates have been less than 1% with HIFU with a focal treatment, less than 5% with cryotherapy. Um Erectile function rates, about 15, dysfunction rates, about 15% uh, or less. Even with focal therapy? Even with focal, but this depends a lot on patient selection. Um, If you're treating mainly older men, then they're going to have worse outcomes. If you're treating mainly younger men, they're going to have better outcomes because they have more reserve to begin with. If you look at erectile dysfunction with um, surgery or radiation, maybe you're talking 25 to 30%. Really? That high? Um, and, and that's across everyone. You know, if you do it in a, a surgery in a 50-year-old, uh, he has a much lower chance of developing erectile dysfunction because he has more reserve. If you do it in an 80-year-old, uh, probably 50% of them are going to have worsening erectile function. And the same goes for, for continence. So definitely lower lower rates with focal treatment. All right, so you got lots of options for treatment. It's good to have. That's right. Well, one in nine men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during his lifetime. And it's good to know that there are multiple treatment options these days, including focal therapy. Absolutely. Our guest, urologist Dr. Derek Lomas, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, exercise and your heart and treatment for migraines. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Frequent hand washing is one of the best ways to avoid getting sick and spreading illness. As you touch people, services and objects throughout the day, you accumulate germs on your hands. You can infect yourself with these germs by touching your eyes, nose, or mouth, or spread them to others. Although it's important to keep your hands germ-free, it's impossible to keep them completely germ-free, but washing your hands frequently can help limit the transfer of bacteria, viruses, and other microbes. Always wash your hands before preparing food or eating, treating wounds or caring for a sick person, inserting or removing contact lenses. And always wash your hands after you prepare food. You use the toilet or change a diaper. You touch an animal, animal feed or animal waste. You blow your nose, cough or sneeze, or you treat wounds or care for a sick person. And definitely wash them after handling garbage. Also, wash your hands when they are visibly dirty. It's generally best to wash your hands with soap and water, over-the-counter antibacterial soaps are no more effective at killing germs than is regular soap. Now, when you wash, use clean running water, either warm or cold. Apply the soap and lather up well, rubbing hands for about 20 seconds, getting in between fingers and under nails, and then rinse and dry. Alcohol-based sanitizers, which don't require water, are an acceptable alternative when soap and water aren't available. If you use a hand sanitizer, make sure the product contains at least 60% alcohol. Hand washing is a simple, effective way to help you stay healthy. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Tracy, how many times have we heard in the past few years that exercise is good for your health? A long time. Yep, and it is. <laughs> Almost forever. <laughs> it's, all, it's good for you in many ways, including lowering your risk of heart disease. What's an expert's opinion, you might ask? Well, joining us in studio is the co-director of the Sports Cardiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Todd Miller. He's also my hero. He's a longtime runner and has completed over 20 marathons. Dr. Miller, good to have you on the program. Tell us about this Sports Cardiology Clinic. Mayo has a long tradition of teaching people about exercise, and the way that has generally evolved is people who generally have been sedentary are encouraged to exercise and that's part of the executive health program but it also applies to people who might have new onset coronary artery disease if you've had a heart attack you're placed in a cardiac rehab program and that's been a supervised exercise approach that applies to people who generally have been sedentary the sports cardiology clinic that we uh, have been performing for the past half dozen years relates to people who consider themselves athletes So it's more than just the recreational exerciser. It's somebody who's entering competitive events. And we generally break this up into two camps. There's the pediatric sports cardiology clinic, which mainly applies to high school and collegiate age athletes. Much of what goes on there is screening people for underlying heart problems. It's become a big uh, issue. And in the older adult athlete, it applies to people who might be entering a 5K or a 10K and they would like to continue participating, but they have some concern about their heart or they've actually been diagnosed with heart disease and they're wondering, can I continue these activities? So you said that you're trying to screen them for an underlying cardiac problem so that they wouldn't get into trouble when they did compete. That's correct. And And how do you do that? Well, most of the screening goes on in the younger athletes. So if you look at it backwards, each year in the United States there's about 80 cardiac events on the athletic field or shortly thereafter that occur in these younger athletes. And when you look at what cardiac conditions are causing those deaths, 
they can be identified as a few underlying abnormalities, something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's an over overdevelopment of the heart muscle. It's a heart muscle that's excessively thick, or some of these people are prone to certain arrhythmias of the heart because they have congenital conditions called long QT syndrome, or some uh, individuals have an artery that the coronary artery, instead of taking the usual path, takes an abnormal pathway that can also be associated with sudden death in young people. So you can screen for these conditions. The trouble is our screening tests are not very good for applying them to large populations, at least the cheap tests. And if you want to apply the more accurate tests, it becomes a very expensive proposition. I read recently that there's evidence that extreme athletes, marathoners, uh, Ironmen, et cetera, might be increasing their risk for developing an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation and possibly even coronary artery disease. True? Uh, that's correct. There's been a lot of concern about that. So the way these studies are usually done, they identify a big population, a community population, and they look at the prevalence of coronary artery disease or atrial fibrillation. And then within that population – they can identify a handful of extreme athletes or maybe 100 athletes out of several thousand people. And what they'll do then is take the athletes and match them to other members of the population by age and gender who are not extreme athletes. And they look at the prevalence of these conditions, atrial fibrillation or coronary artery disease. And in these cross-sectional studies that are performed that way, the prevalence of atrial fibrillation has about, been about five times higher than in uh, similar sedentary people. Why? Oh, there's a lot of uh, plausible mechanisms for that. When you exercise, you develop what's called athletic heart syndrome, so your heart chambers get bigger, Hmm. and the atrial fibrillation arises from the upper chambers of the heart, the atria, so they will also enlarge as part of the athletic training, and as you stretch heart muscle, it makes it more arrhythmia-prone. So that's one of the more common mechanisms as to why this is felt to be more uh, common in the athletes. Have you ever uh, studied whether or not marathoners or those who uh, have done high-intensity exercise live longer or don't live as long as the general population? Um, It's hard to tease out that data, but um, there are studies that have looked at it, and probably the best study was done in France, and they looked at uh, cyclists who had been in the Tour de France, mm-hmm. and they found that, again, compared to age match controls and all that who are sedentary, the cyclists were living longer than the people who weren't physically active. Well, let's talk about the average people, <laughs> and you used the word athlete in the beginning, and it seems to me that a lot of people get confused about the word athlete. I'd love to know what a cardiologist's definition of what an athlete means. We consider someone an athlete who's entering formal organized events and for the adult crowd it's mainly distance running or Mm -hmm. triathletes there are some other sports but that's most of it in the upper uh, midwest here we also see some cross-country skiers etc so that's how we define an athlete part of the reason why this has become such a prominent issue is if you look at entrance so some of these are repeat people but if you look at entrance into distant events of 5k or longer each year it's 20 million in the united states right now so as the population's aging more and more people seem to be doing this type of thing and then these cardiac issues arise so for the most of us if we want to do a good for our heart and, and we want to be heart healthy how much exercise do we need what should we do right so 
the emphasis these days has been on not just exercise but physical activity. So exercise falls under the larger umbrella of physical activity. And the reason why there's such an emphasis on physical activity is we're in the middle of this obesity epidemic. Forty percent of the country is now medically obese. Um, and the new physical activity guidelines for Americans, the second edition of these were just released in 2018, and they put a strong emphasis on just being active at any point in time. So the old version of the guidelines said, oh, you need to do 10 minutes of some type of exercise type of activity at least at a particular time. The new version says, forget all that. Just get around and move more. So it's the old take the stairs instead of the elevator. Absolutely. And uh, But is it still true that 30 minutes of uh, vigorous exercise most days of the week is, is recommended? Yes. Yeah, so these activity guidelines emphasis emphasize this activity that we would usually not think of as exercise, just be more active with daily life. That's called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's a new buzzword. But in addition to that, Dr. Shives, you also want to do half an hour, five days a week of endurance or aerobic exercise like brisk walking, jogging. And in addition to that, you should be doing a couple of days a week of strength training to improve your overall muscle tone, which in older people in particular has been shown to help reduce the risk of falls. Is vigorous exercise meaning you're breathing heavy? Vigorous exercise means you're breathing heavy. Um, So you don't need a formal exercise test to check this out. You can basically do that by using the simple breath test. So when you're out exercising with somebody, you should be doing enough exercise so that you're starting to feel mildly dysmic or mildly short of breath. You might even break out into a little bit of a sweat, but you should still be able to carry on a conversation of full sentences. All right. No question about it. Exercise is good for you, and it's especially good for your heart. It's that simple. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist and the co-director of the Sports Cardiology Clinic, Dr. Todd Miller. Thanks again, Dr. Miller. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the latest in treatment for headaches. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Download the Mayo Clinic Q&A podcast today for the latest complete versions of interviews you hear on Mayo Clinic Radio. Find Mayo Clinic Q&A podcasts on your favorite podcast providers. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, as as you know, headaches are really common. In fact, in the United States, over 15% of adults complain of a severe headache or a migraine. And in fact, migraines affect some 40 million people in the United States. Headaches are twice as common among women than among men. And interestingly, headaches are more common in younger people than those age 65 and older. Here to talk about headaches, including the latest treatments, is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Beth Robertson. Welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you about your job. Do you spend all day, every day, seeing people who have headaches? I do. I do. So I have a background in both nerve and headaches, but I'm interested only in the nerves above the neck. So all day, every day, those are my patients. And are most of these people, have? do they have migraines or what The kind strong of majority of our patients do have migraines, often very severe migraines that have been hard to treat with their local physicians. So they've had 
years of, of difficult to treat headaches before we see them. You know, before we talk about migraines, tell us about the headaches that most of us get from time to time. The ordinary headache. Do you call them tension headaches? Or, uh, why do we get common those? Headaches. Hey, right. not common headaches. Right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, so what most people refer to when they're talking about that ordinary or normal headache would be a tension headache. That's more of a, a mild, dull, pressure type sensation on both sides of the head, sometimes triggered by stress, sometimes not sleeping enough the night before. And um, those are often treated with over-the-counter medicines. Which one's best? So most patients prefer NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen or Aleve. But any over-the-counter pain medicine might be helpful. Acetaminophen's okay, too. Whichever, whatever works. That's right. And most of the time, people are able to function with those. They take the medicine, they go about their day, and I never see them in clinic. When my kids complain about headaches, or even for myself, I just say, drink some water. And that seems to help. Maybe it's just gonna gives you a little bit of time. Does do people get headaches because they don't drink enough water? So dehydration can be a trigger for headaches, often a trigger for migraine headaches. And my son who struggles with migraine, I also tell him to drink some water as a first line. But um, it's less common to trigger the tension type headache. I was surprised to learn that there are 40 million Americans. No wonder you're so busy. <laughs> Lucky we got you in the studio. 40 million Americans who have migraines, and it's 18 percent of of women and 6% of men, much more common in women. Any reason for that? So I, I, I want to say, too, for those almost 40 million patients, there's only about 500 headache specialists, so we are quite busy. Mm. But um, as far as why women, so the brain doesn't like change, and migraine brains are particularly vulnerable to changes in sleep, changes in stress, and changes in hormones. So women have those cyclic changes in estrogen around their ovulation and menstrual cycles, and then around pregnancies, and as they get close to to menopause, there's this roller coaster over their lives, and that tends to contribute to triggering the headache. What can you do to fix or to help people who suffer from migraines? So there are a number of treatment options, and we would divide treatments into acute treatments, so a treatment that you would take at the onset of the headache, and then a treatment that they might take every day to reduce the frequency or the severity of the headaches. Those are preventative medicines. And you've got some new in both categories, right? We do. Yeah, it's a very exciting time for migraine. It's nice to be a headache practitioner these days because we have so many new options. Our classic options for the acute treatments have been, as I mentioned, sort of over-the-counter and then non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And then we've had triptans for many years now that we would use for patients. But more recently, we've had some newer classes. So we have something called a G-Pant. We ha- this just came out. Ubrojipant is the first one that's been FDA-approved. That came out over the holidays. And that is focused on a different pathway. So instead of our, our classic migraine paths that we're trying to address, now we're focused on something called the CGRP, or calcitonin gene-related peptide molecule. Yeah, so, try to remember that. Right, yeah. right. I know. It's a, it's a long word. But CGRP, we've known for decades, has been involved in migraine. So we know that during a migraine, CGRP goes up. When you treat the migraine, CGRP comes down. And if you inject 
CGRP, it will cause a migraine. So we've wanted to figure out how to disrupt that CGRP pathway for quite some time. And the preventatives that we can talk about in a little bit, if you'd like, have been focused on that pathway. But in our acute medicines, this ubrojapant has been designed to block the receptor for CGRP. And it seems like this is able to bring down the headaches in a way similar to the tryptans that we've been using for headache in the past, but maybe better tolerated and maybe a little safer for some of our patients. So our tryptans were an issue for anybody with a heart attack or stroke because they constrict blood vessels. And this new class, this G-Pant class, does not constrict blood vessels. All right, and the exciting thing also is those uh, three new drugs approved in 2018 to prevent migraines. Three different ones, uh, do they work? Yes. He said that <laughs> not a in little every, bit well, hesitantly. You know, because no drug works in every patient. Mm-hmm. But yes, these are also trying to address that same CGRP pathway. So there are three what we call monoclonal antibodies that are out. So these are antibodies that are targeting, in two of the cases, they're targeting the CGRP protein. And one of them is targeting, again, the receptor, trying to interfere with that pain signal that we think is going on during migraine. And then there's another one that should come out later this year. And so these have been given in a monthly injection form. There's also a potential for an every three-month injection form. If people are taking them over time, about half of patients will have a 50% reduction in their headaches. So that's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty okay. good. If yeah. someone has migraines, they get they find something that works, then does that efficacy wear away and they have to then move on to something else? Or if you find something that works, are you set? Both can happen. Some patients do find that magic drug, maybe one that we've already been using for many years, and they do well for years. And then other patients may find that the effectiveness wears off over time and they require something else. And I don't want to mislead, you know, these CGRP medicines are very glamorous, but we do have a lot of other weapons in our arsenal as well that can also help. Such as? There's another new one that I really feel obligated to mention that's in the acute medicines uh, category called lasmitidine. It's a cousin of the tryptians, but also does not constrict blood vessels. So again, it's about finding something that's safer for these patients that have really been untreated for a migraine population. And then we also use Botox injections quite regularly as a preventative with good success. Counseling, uh, also part of uh, the treatment for patients with migraine. Many of our patients do have associated anxiety and depression, and maybe they started anxious and depressed, or maybe just being in pain all day, every day, which many of our patients are, has led to anxiety and depression. And the problem is that that feeds back and that can worsen headache over time. So sometimes patients do require additional help addressing that, either with additional medicines for depression or with cognitive behavioral therapy, um, sometimes stress-relieving activities, exercise, meditation and yoga, things to help address that. Does acupuncture ever work? Ever? Yes, absolutely. No question. Sometimes? Always? No. We just have one more question. The hangover headache. (laughs) 
<laughs> what do you recommend? <laughs> I don't see those a lot in clinic, <laughs> but um, you know, hangovers are uh, multifactorial. So you have the alcohol toxins floating around, actually triggering headache, and then you have the associated dehydration that needs to be addressed separately. Drink some water. That's um, right, okay. water. <laughs> and then um, you know, alcohol interferes with the quality of sleep, the sleep architecture. So sleep deprivation can sometimes worsen the headache. So obviously you sleep it off, drink water, or maybe avoid the alcohol entirely. Time so machine. I knew that was going to be the answer. <laughs> Always the answer. All right. Headaches and migraines, common problems, and a source of disability for a lot of Americans. Now, fortunately, the treatments for migraines are better, and there are even some newer medications out there that will actually prevent migraines. Absolutely. Our thanks to neurologist Dr. Beth Robertson from the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much, Dr. Thank Robertson. You. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.com. MayoClinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.